The Commission is indeed working on a legal proposal on such uh, digital green passes, which can be expected still in March. The aim will be to work towards uh, facilitating safe free movement in the European Union. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard a spokesperson for the European Commission talking this week about plans for an EU-wide vaccine passport. We're going to debate that idea in just a moment with our podcast panel and also discuss crumbling EU solidarity when it comes to vaccines. And later on the podcast, you'll hear from our new EU-China correspondent, Stuart Lau, for the first in an occasional series of conversations about Europe's increasingly important and increasingly complex relationship with China. But first, we have discussed many controversial topics on this podcast. Brexit, relations with Russia, the Iran nuclear deal, I don't think we've ever had as much feedback and in some cases blowback as we did after last week's discussion about Euro-English. Listeners from one EU member country in particular were upset that their variety of English inadvertently ended up on the cutting room floor. So here's a message just for them with the help of one of our listeners, Tomas O'Connell, whose name might just give you a clue when it comes to which country we're talking about. Hello, what's the crack? Uh, the EU Confidential crew is sorry that it didn't include Ireland and Hiberno-English in its discussion on English in last week's episode. Our lovely Irish listeners are important to us. Thanks to those who reached out and we hope that you'll keep listening. And rest assured that you're a valued member of the EU and our podcast. Sláin! Hope a few Irish eyes and ears are smiling after that one. Thanks to Tomas and thanks to all of you for your feedback. You can send it to us via email. The address is podcast at politico.eu and we welcome it in all forms of English. Now, let's get to that podcast panel. So a slightly different lineup uh, this week. Reem is in Paris as usual. Hi, Reem. Hello, all. Matt is out this week, but we're delighted to be joined by Sarah Wheaton, our Chief Policy Correspondent in Brussels. Hi, Sarah. Guten Tag, on Matt's behalf. There we go. We've done our bit for the German audience. So let's dive right into, well, it's coronavirus time again. I think there's a couple of, of big topics that have kind of dominated the week. One of them is the fact that an increasing number of EU countries seem to be looking elsewhere now. In fact, they are looking elsewhere to get supplies of coronavirus vaccines. Sarah, do you have a kind of overview of who's been going where for vaccine shopping? And then we'll get into the potential implications. Well, it's getting harder and harder to keep track, but um, broadly, sort of the Visegrad countries are in the vanguard on this. Of course, everybody's favorite Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, posted a picture of himself getting the Chinese Sinovac vaccine. We've also seen the Polish government ask China for their vaccine. We've seen Slovakia order 2 million doses of the Russian vaccine, if I'm not losing track. And we've also seen the Czech government request doses of the Chinese vaccine. So they're going all over the place. Right. Plus Denmark and Austria uh, teaming up with Israel, right? Uh, slightly different venture there, but also going outside the EU. Indeed, it's a little hard to understand what's happening there. So this meeting is supposed to happen 
on Thursday. So presumably we will have some clarity by the time this podcast airs. But we've heard from Netanyahu that it might be some sort of vaccine production team up or perhaps a stockpiling effort. Right. But again, and also just interesting, the rhetoric, uh, Austrian Chancellor Sebastian Kurz in particular, using Bilt, Germany's biggest newspaper, to basically, I'm trying to think of a polite way to say this, uh, criticise the, the EU's approach, the rollout of vaccines so far. So I guess the question then, Sarah, is how much does this affect the EU's approach? You know, there's been, the mantra from Brussels has been solidarity. That seems to be falling apart, at least to an extent. How, how serious do you think it is? I think it's quite serious in the sense that the EU has never had officially health authority. And the coronavirus pandemic has made people question that thinking because obviously, you know, the rhetoric is the virus doesn't respect borders. And so it does make sense that we want to have everybody in the European Union since we under normal circumstances, have open borders. We want everybody to have the same immunity level. And also just sort of the political message about everybody getting vaccinated at the same time, whether it's the big, rich countries or the smaller, less wealthy countries. So the Capitals gave the commission an unusual amount of authority to buy these vitally important vaccines for them. And many of them are feeling very burned. And the big irony, though, is that With the exception of Denmark and Austria, the countries that are going around and looking for extra doses are the smaller countries who would have been the least successful buying vaccines on their own. So if you're France, if you're Germany, you have a credible argument that you might have done better on your own, whereas the Slovakias and the Czech Republics of the world would have struggled more. So there's extra bitterness in these more powerful capitals that they're out shopping around. Right, Reem, I mean, that's the obvious question. If we look at uh, one of the big capitals, Paris, how are French officials looking at these smaller countries going off the reservation, if you like? So there are two things. One, I spoke to a well-informed French official. Clearly, this official did not hide how unhappy Paris is. And it's not because they don't want these countries to do what's best for their own people, but it's because, as this official put it, they can't be the ones who benefit most from the solidarity, but at the same time also weaken it the most when countries like France or or Germany may have done better outside of the sort of common approach, even though to this day, this French official continues to say that the common approach is the right approach, and that's what should be preserved. I also think back at what President Macron said at the press conference last week at the end of the European Council summit, when I think it was Slovakia and another country had made it clear that they wanted sort of to borrow uh, a few hundred thousand doses from bigger countries, namely France. And it was interesting because Macron took the time to basically publicly say, listen, guys, the way that the common system was set up was we all got to reserve doses at the same time. And some of these smaller countries didn't really believe that Pfizer or Moderna were going to work. And so they under-reserved. And now they're coming out and saying, oh, dear, we need more doses and, you know, help us out. And then Macron said, obviously, it was up to the commission to come up with a solidarity plan that would be sustainable. Right. And one thing that obviously strikes me, would strike a lot of people, is that the vaccines that some of these countries are turning to are vaccines that have not been approved by the European Medicines Agency. Now, as we know, there's a kind of loophole. Countries are allowed to do that. But if we're trying to keep everything or if they're trying to keep everything in a a kind of pan-European 
level, I think this raises a number of questions. And one of those relates to something you've been looking at, Sarah, which is the idea of a digital green pass, some kind of electronic passport that would take account of the fact you've been vaccinated and might kind of open doors for you that are not open to other people. That could include travel. It could include going to restaurants or bars or or whatever. But you'd be looking a bit further ahead, right, to kind of how this might develop into the future. What are the what are the scenarios broadly that you've sketched out? Sure. Well, we should we should draw some distinctions here first. So, what is being actually discussed at the European level right now, and that the Commission has said they will put out a proposal for on March seventeenth, is this digital green pass, as Commission President Ursula von der Leyen put it, and that would be a passport for international travel that affirms that you have been vaccinated. And we do get into questions about EU solidarity there and this issue of using non-approved vaccines in the sense that, okay, if Hungary is giving out Russian and Chinese vaccines that haven't been approved. And Orban has said they're actually, for their domestic vaccine certificates, they're going to wipe out the record of which vaccine you actually got. So we won't be able to know. Other European countries might say, hey, we're totally open to letting in people who are vaccinated, but we don't actually know if all these Hungarians have been vaccinated with something that actually works. So I'll be very curious to see how that plays out and if that actually in the end could be some leverage for Brussels to force some solidarity on the vaccine issue. The other thing that we are slowly hearing being discussed and that is actually being implemented actively in Israel is a broader sort of immunity certificate that would be your way of entering everyday life. So Israel, which has vaccinated a huge majority of its population already, so you don't have this kind of issue of fairness, they're saying, yeah, you know what, some places like gyms, if you've been vaccinated or you can prove immunity in some other way, you can go into those. And we've heard even Marcus Söder in Germany kind of present this as like, well, in the future we can imagine this because... We're not going to require people to get vaccines, but it wouldn't be fair if the people who have made the contribution to society by getting vaccinated, it wouldn't be fair if we don't let them have some extra privileges. The UK, they are talking about using their National Health Service app to serve as a sort of vaccine certificate and letting people live normal lives based on that. And so it's not something that that policymakers are sort of really actively ironing out yet, but it is something that we see coming up in the future. But actually, interestingly, Macron spoke about this last week, and he said that on the French level, he's looking at what he called a health pass. And of course, since France, um, uh, let's put it nicely and say that they're not vaccinating as fast as the UK. You know, he said, well, in that health pass, it wouldn't just be a vaccine because that would be really unfair. But actually, it would incorporate whether you've had COVID before. So do you still have antibodies? And when did you have COVID? But also, when did you last have a negative piece? PCR test. And so that would allow you to get into museums, that would allow you to go to the theater, etc, etc. And that's what they're looking at, at the French level. We'll see what we end up with. Obviously, in France, there's also uh, quite a high level of anti-vaccination sentiment, even though that has gone down in recent weeks. Right. Well, and it's really important that you brought up that distinction, Reem, between purely vaccination versus immunity status. But immunity status is actually, in many ways, even more invasive than just this yes or no of whether you got vaccinated or not. And 
it also requires more kind of scientific understanding of whether people are actually immune or not. And so I have spent the past week talking to experts, reading the many white papers and lobbying documents from tech companies about what some of these immunity passes could actually look like. And you have these scenarios that range from sort of this like Gattaca sci-fi dystopia where you have this sort of vaccine apartheid where people who can prove their immunity have access to everything. And then you have these like anti-vaxxer slash privacy hardliner outposts and people really are segregated based on their immunity status. Many of the other scenarios I saw, you know, just sort of see these things getting tied up in some sort of legal limbo. Nobody's really sure whether they can enforce an immunity pass because they don't know if it adheres to the GDPR. And so businesses basically have to decide, well, on the one hand, I can get sued for privacy violations. And on the other hand, I can get sued for allowing sick people into my into my place of business. So that's a hard choice that may be coming up for other places. And then the other the other scenario that emerged is just that like nobody's actually going to agree on how we should have this vaccine passport look or or operate and so airlines might have one and then you know a bunch of chain stores might have another one and a university will have a different one and it'll be you know on your phone or on your your keychain where you have like discount cards for like 10 different grocery stores <laughs> it's going to turn into that sort of situation you're never really going to know whether you need it or not and then again to this immunity issue there's also the concern that we'll create this thing we'll tell everybody that they're immune but then the app doesn't get updated with the latest scientific understanding of what immunity actually means and so it ends up being totally pointless and we have to go back into lockdowns anyway right it does sound like it's still some way away and i think if we look at you know recent attempts to kind of use technology to alleviate some of the effects of the pandemic, you know, the, the corona tracing apps, the common passenger locator form, which, uh, you know, was meant to be a way for to kind of track people across Europe who were arriving, you know, common form, didn't really get off the ground. So this is ambitious stuff, I would say. Let's let's put it that way. And before we finish, Reem, do you want to come in with, because you also had an issue regarding people travelling between countries in times of corona. Do you want to fill us in on that? I mean, I just want to say, first of all, not to sound like some crazy elitist, but you know, for people, for people like me who have multiple nationalities and family strewn across continents, traveling is not pleasure. It is not leisure. It is literally a necessity. And I understand it's been a year and we're all in this pandemic. And so obviously there are some real, very severe uh, sort of limits on how much we can travel. And that's perfectly okay. I get it. We're in a pandemic. Except to my surprise this week, I found out that no other than Justin Bieber and his lovely wife, Haley Baldwin Bieber, came to Paris, went on a romantic stroll. It was his birthday earlier this week. And they're shooting some sort of music video and of course, their fans, you know, crowded all around their hotel, which, you know, obviously is not very COVID friendly. And I really want to know what kind of imperative reason they were given to be allowed to come to France, which, by the way, is what you need to prove to be able to, to come to France when people like me, who is a resident in France, but also an American citizen, can actually travel to the States and come back unless I show an imperative reason. And I dared say that on Twitter and my... God, did I attract what they call the army of believers who wanted to explain to me that I was just a useless person who didn't oh. understand work. Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. Well, I guess this is, the, I mean, I'm sure 
Have they given an official reason? I'm guessing it was something to do with, you know, he was making art, right? Because if there's one exemption that France would give anyone, surely it would be if they were doing something cultural or artistic. Well, French artists would not be very happy to hear that since French uh, museums and all sorts of plays and, and you know, artistic mm. uh, events have been completely cancelled for a year. So okay. I, I'm just putting it out there. I would love right. to get, well, a, good. you know, French yeah. policymakers hearing us, please send me an email. Yeah, and believers. No, please don't. Big overlap. (laughs) Venn diagram between EU confidentialists and believers. Huge overlap. Sorry, Sarah, go ahead. Yeah, so I I guess I'll also fill Matt Carnegie's role in terms of... (laughs) (laughs) You don't even know what I'm going to say and you're already laughing. No, but I'm already worried. worried. I will also fulfill Matt's role by by coming out as an Emily in Paris fan. And so my... (laughs) My question to Reem is, is, which is more offensive, Emily in Paris or Justin in Paris? <laughs> Honestly, that is a very tough call. I'm going to have to think on it and get back to you. <laughs> yeah, that could be could be a tie. OK, I, I think we'll leave it there. Reem and Sarah, thanks very much. Thank you. And we'll be back a little bit later with some lockdown recommendations. And right after the break, we'll return with our special report on China with Stuart Lau, the author of our brand new China Direct newsletter, which you can subscribe to today. In the world of politics and policy, information is abundant. Insight is rare. Politico's premium intelligence service, Politico Pro, is designed for policy professionals Our expert team keeps you one step ahead of the powers and players driving the policy decisions impacting your industry. From financial services to trade, technology, cybersecurity, and more, Politico Pro delivers breaking scoops, deep analysis, and forward-looking insight across a range of sectors. Want to learn more? EU Confidential listeners can benefit from a two-week complimentary trial of Politico Pro. Simply email pro at politico.eu with the code CONFIDENTIAL. Again, that's pro at politico.eu. And now it's time to talk China and its relations with the EU. To do that, we've brought in our new EU-China correspondent and author of the brand new China Direct newsletter, Stuart Lau. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Andrew. So, Stuart, this is the start of a series of conversations we're going to have about China, different aspects of the EU's relationship with China. And today uh, we thought we'd start with trade and the economic factors influencing the EU's approach to China. In a moment, we'll get one point of view in this debate from a former Italian minister who played a key role in developing closer relations with Beijing when he was in office and is now based in China. But first, I wonder... When it comes to relations with China, you know, how would you identify the different groups and how they relate to China? So broadly speaking, there would be three groups of European countries in terms of how friendly or how close they are with China. So obviously you have the friendly bloc, places like Hungary, you know, which is always trying to use China as a hedge against the EU. And you have countries like Greece, which is home to like massive Chinese investments in, for example, the port of Piraeus. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the sceptical countries, Britain being a prime example, and you have the Baltic countries, countries like Romania, like Sweden, that are also plotting some, you know, directions further away from China or, you know, taking a more sceptical line. So 
one common characteristic for these skeptical countries would be their alliance with the U.S. So strategically, they are naturally more skeptical about Beijing. And then beyond these two groups, you also have the countries that are in the middle that are somewhat, you know, hedging between the U.S. and China. So Germany is a very good example. I mean, of they have been taking the lead in trying to get the EU signed the investment deal with China. But on the other hand, they also want to show the new Biden administration that there is a lot to work on transatlantically. Poland is another good example, a key U.S. ally. But when it comes to, you know, selling agri-food to China, they're also trying to get their own deals done. Mm. It's interesting. And it's interesting just to hear you talk about those camps, because even in the time that I've been following this, you can see that some of those have changed camps, right? There was a time when the UK was was very pro-economic relations with China and, and all of that. And it's interesting to see how, how some of these countries, if you like, have changed camps in recent years. But let's talk about the big news in recent months when it comes to the EU and China. And that's when the EU signed an agreement with China at the end of last year, called the EU-China Comprehensive Agreement on Investment, or CAI for short. So, Stuart, just tell us briefly, if you can, what's significant about that deal and perhaps also why it caused so many ructions both within the EU and beyond. Right. The significance for the EU is that this is the first time for them that China has made promises on opening up market access and creating some sort of a level playing field between European companies on the one hand and the state-owned enterprises from China on the other. And so China has also made promises on being more transparent on the level of state subsidies they have been giving to their state-owned enterprises operating in China. So for the EU, there are quite a few concessions made by the Chinese government. And for China, the significance is less economic but more geostrategic is about presenting a picture where there is a lot for the EU and China to work on, even though the US doesn't seem to be very happy about it. Of course, from China's perspective, it's a long term, you know, competition, a long term struggle, if you like, with the US. So presenting a sort of harmonious picture with the EU means quite a lot to Beijing. As for the ructions, For a lot of critics here in Brussels and elsewhere in Europe, people are asking whether this deal is the right way forward, partly because of the economic structure, the human rights concerns in China, but also more broadly, whether this is striking the right note when it comes to transatlantic alliance, when it comes to working with Biden, whether it's actually the right time to to put up a middle finger of sort to the American administration. Right, which is how it was seen, seen in some quarters. And this deal was sealed just shortly before the Biden administration took office, right? And after the incoming administration had said it would be, they would appreciate if Europe could hold off until they could discuss this with them. So that certainly made some waves as well. But earlier this week, you spoke to someone who, who certainly knows China well, also knows the EU-China economic relationship well. So tell us a bit more about him. Yeah, so I spoke to Michele Geraci. I'm uh, Michele Geraci, professor of uh, practice at the University of Nottingham in finance and uh, Chinese economic policy. I am the former Under Secretary of State for the Italian government responsible for international trade. 
And in his role as Under Secretary of State, Girachi is known to have been a key person in Italy, signing a somewhat controversial deal at the time in 2019, which was a Memorandum of Understanding or MOU on the Belt and Road Initiative of Beijing. Okay, and the Belt and Road is a is a phrase that gets bandied around a lot. Can you give us the you know the potted definition of of what it actually is? So it is the flagship infrastructure and investment program launched by China by this President Xi Jinping himself first in 2013. But the program actually started gaining more momentum in 2017 when China held the first international forum in Beijing with Vladimir Putin attending, for example. And so it has been focusing a lot on. Making investments in the developing part of the world in、um, Africa, for example, in Latin America, but slowly we are also seeing more investments coming into Europe, in Western Balkans, in、um, certain countries, and this time it's Italy.、Mm. And why is Giraci in particular, you know, a controversial figure in this debate? His role is very interesting. So before he joined the Italian government in 2018, he was a long-time academic and businessman. In China, and so、um, he wasn't really very well known in the Italian politics until he got appointed, and soon afterwards he has been、uh, talking a lot and you know lobbying in the Italian government on the importance of having a closer economic relations with China. And when Xi Jinping was visiting Italy, he managed to get Conte sign a Belt and Road MOU with Xi Jinping. To the dismay of a lot of you know governments around the world, America, you know the European Commission, for example, France as well. So、um, in that sense, he made a lot of achievements, but also attracted a lot of criticism. Okay, and he obviously saw what he was doing as an important step leading up to the CAI. Yes, Italy was the first, but it seems that everyone now recognizes, after the initial criticism, that、uh, indeed this is the route to engage with China to do various levels of new generation of call it MOU agreement. We call it whatever we want; they are all the same. They are agreements between one country, in this case the European Union, in our case Italy, with China. What is the purpose? The same: complete alignment of interests. To try to help our companies to do more business with China, to have open doors to investment, and to have more export opportunities. So, I think that the Italian MOU will be remembered as the, let's say, the first step in a series of agreement that engage China with the West. So that brings us back to the EU's investment deal. Maybe we can talk just a bit more about that. From the EU side, you already talked a bit about the attraction of the deal from the EU, particularly for some countries. But what was the the problem that they were trying to address by doing that deal? So the number one concern for the European governments is market access, and that is the main issue that the EU was trying to address. But Giraci was saying that you know this is not going to happen overnight. The deal is only the beginning. We should not be falling under the illusion that the deal will solve problem. The deal is the beginning of a process of a path that would lead over the next several years to achieve the things that the European company do want. And China is slowly opening up certain sectors to foreign investment. Uh, we've seen, for example, high-tech sectors like chemical companies or machinery-producing companies from countries like Germany investing more and more, and actually 
gaining quite a big market in China. But European companies are also saying that this process is not happening fast enough. And on the flip side, Jirachi explains China's reasoning for this. China says, guys, we are a developing economy, so we need our time and uh, degree and the speed of openness cannot be seen in isolation from the fact that China has a GDP per capita, which is only a third, a fourth of many developed countries. So this is the big conflict that the East and West, that Europe and China have. Europe makes demand for equal access. And China says, we cannot really give you equal access because we are a developing economy. So we need to find a midway in between these two different starting points. And another thing that Jirachi concedes is that this deal will ultimately benefit bigger European companies, potentially leaving the smaller, medium-sized you know, SME companies in Europe out of the equation. The bigger beneficiary of this agreement are the large companies, uh, because uh, we are discussing an investment agreement, and only large companies have the financial muscle and the shoulder to be taking the risk to invest in China. So the SMEs... Uh, will not be benefit unless they go through a process of, let's say, aggregation and grandfathering under the protection of a larger company. Let's say larger German company would do the investment in China and some Italian SMEs would indirectly benefit because there are suppliers. Okay, so that's the case for the defence of the deal, if you like. What's the case for the prosecution? Who says the EU should not have done this deal and why? Sure. Certain members of the European Parliament, they're not very happy with the deal and they're threatening not to ratify it because of human rights abuses on the part of the Chinese government, which it denies. And the central question here is forced labour. OK, so we're talking there about things like the crackdown on protesters in Hong Kong, reported human rights violations, very serious ones against the Uyghur minority. And these are concerns that China frequently dismisses, but as you say, Stuart, are taken very seriously in some quarters. Exactly. And there are many voices in the European Parliament who have spoken out on this. Uh, one of the main ones is the Green MEP Heinhard Butikofa. He's the chair of the Parliament's delegation for relations with China. The policy of the Chinese Communist Party towards the Uyghurs has never been liberal But in 2014, a totalitarian turn was taken in Xinjiang that has created the worst police state that we have on the globe today. And then there's a French colleague of his by the name of Raphael Glucksmann. Voilà la terreur qui s'abat sur les Ouïghours de Chine en ce moment. Et les grands silences permettent les grands crimes. He's from the Socialists and Democrats group. He has called European leaders out of touch with the times for securing this deal whilst witnessing violence and jailing of protesters in Hong Kong. OK, and what did Girachi have to say about those concerns? I asked him about the concerns expressed by MEPs, and while he did say that human rights is an important issue, his opinion is that they're going about it all wrong. The more important issue is how to deal with the problem. And there's two ways to do it. Either people raise their voices, on the media, publicly, politicians make a big fuss of it, and that is actually counterproductive in solving the core issue. Because the way 
China deals with problems, and the way we should deal with problems that are involving China is to be quiet and negotiate behind closed doors, because there's an issue of face, there's an issue of a political sovereignty that China would not be happy to argue about. China sees whatever happens in its own border as a domestic issue. So any loud voice from external would be seen as an interference. So we have to choose. Do we really want to solve the problem or are we looking for consensus to create a bubble of support? I think the biggest takeaway when we are talking about economics and trade between Western countries in Europe and China is that they are coming into the situation with very different perspectives. If you only look at the last 100 years, you think that China is gaining. But if you look at the 2000 years, you see that China is taking back what it was its. And so this is the big problem that we in the West have difficulty accepting, that we will become less and less relevant. Okay, now that's quite a statement. Do you think that's widely accepted in the West, that it's going to become less relevant as China becomes more powerful? Or do some in the West see a way that keeps them relevant? And what would that be? It's a very interesting question. So I was thinking of something that the last British governor of Hong Kong, Chris Patton, who used to say that it's not mutually exclusive to appreciate China as a civilization on one hand, and to take a more critical stance on the political system on the other. And that is sort of the way that the EU is also operating in, like they're calling China um, simultaneously a partner, an economic competitor and a systemic rival. Of course, you know, the mix of the equation, you know, which side to give more proportion, which side to focus on, is a matter of political calculation. But I think policymakers here have come to realize that it's a complicated relationship and you have to talk about the different issues at different time on different occasions. You have to talk about the money side, you know, the profit making, the business side. But then human rights also comes into play from time to time. Mm. Yeah, as you say, it's a complex conversation and, and we've heard one point of view from Girachi and we'll hear others in the coming months. But we'll leave it there for now. Stuart, thanks very much. Thanks so much, Andrew. And be sure, if you haven't already, to subscribe to Stuart's weekly newsletter. It's called China Direct, published each Thursday, covering the ins and outs of the EU's relationship with China. And we'll make sure there's a link to that in our show notes as well. And Reem and Sarah are back with me now for some quick uh, lockdown recommendations. Sarah, would you like to start? Sure. So normally I would advise that people not look at Twitter if they don't absolutely have to. But if you're going to, you might as well put in something that can disrupt the doom scrolling. And Nigella Lawson's Twitter feed is just a delight. She posts the most amazing food porn and her recipes of the day are always thrilling today. She has, for nostalgia's sake, she has a pineapple upside down cake. Oh, um, classic. I'm already ready to make it. Sometimes she's a little bit political, but only in very subtle ways. So like there was this one day in January where she posted the recipe of the day was a bitter orange tart. And a fellow political colleague actually just decided we were obsessed with this and we plotted about how to find the right oranges and we made it. And then later that day, we realized it was January 20th and it was a joke about Trump leaving the White House bitter orange. Uh, As an American political reporter, I have to admit that part of me felt embarrassed that I didn't get the joke, but another part of me was glad that my work-life balance and my sort of priorities were in the right place. 
Right, that part of your brain was switched off. Well, I would say with that recommendation, you're certainly not playing the Matt Karnichnik role, so, and all the better for it. Uh, Reem, what's yours? Well, this week is the 30th anniversary of the death of legendary French singer Serge Gainsbourg, and so I am going to recommend a four-part uh, podcast on French radio France Culture called Une journée avec Serge Gainsbourg, a day with Serge Gainsbourg, and it was recorded in 1982, and it's really quite thrilling to listen to. That sounds great. Uh, my recommendation is a Netflix documentary. It's called Pelé, and it's about Pelé, the Brazilian footballer, the great Brazilian footballer. And it's fantastic. It has some great archive footage. I don't know where they got it from, but they have footage also from like French TV and German TV. They have really, looks like they've combed the world for great footage of Pelé in various places. And it also does very well with the political context, which I didn't know much about, but how Pelé was kind of drawn into the politics of Brazil at that time. So that's Pelé on Netflix. Uh, Reem and Sarah, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Please take a moment to subscribe if you haven't done so already, wherever you get your podcasts. Just means you'll get every episode automatically from now on in your feed, downloaded to your device, and of course, at no cost. And we'd be grateful if you'd rate us by clicking some stars or even leaving a review. As you heard at the top of the podcast, we very much welcome your feedback. The email address is podcast at politico.eu and we do try to respond to every email we receive, even if it took a bit longer last week because we did receive so many of them. That'll do it for today. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening. 